right, hey everyone. Welcome to Data Brunch with ICPSR. If you love data, this is going to be food for thought. I'm Dory. And I'm Anna. We are recording these episodes, well, I'm gonna say live from the 2021 ICPSR Biennial Meeting. And uh, so please excuse cameos from canine colleagues, kids in class, and other unexpected moments. And if Facebook has come back online, <laughs> no, I'm not going to go there. We might go there later. But, um, <laughs> but, but if you are posting about us, please use the hashtag data brunch and also the hashtag ICPSR. So today, like Dory mentioned, we are excited because we're coming to you live from the ICPSR biennial meeting. This has been three days of incredible data-related training and resources. Um, you are also hearing all of the bloopers that Dory and I usually have live. Um, so you'll know how much our producer extraordinaire, Scott Campbell, means to us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. In just a moment, we'll get to talk to Dr. Libby Hemphill, who studies social media, civic engagement, automated moderation techniques and the connections between them. We are incredibly lucky because we get to call Libby a colleague. Can't think of a better way to close out the biennial meeting. We do have a few things we want to let you know about first. Um, so first, if you haven't seen this yet, we are hiring. Um, as of this recording, we have five job openings, including a data project manager and many more. Um, we will link to those in the show notes. And we do have quite a few webinars coming up and I'm gonna to link to those in the show notes and also here live for folks attending. Um, those webinars include topics like healthcare, um, health reform, bone fragility related to disabilities. Um, there's a webinar coming up on student voting behaviors, on restricted data, on GIS data. Um, we, just, we have a lot of training and it's free. Um, and for everyone joining us here live, um, again, just head over to icpsr.umich.edu. You can click on the events listing uh, that's over there on the left to register. Thanks, Anna. As you know by now, we have a constant stream of new resources, and they're not all related to extremism and social media. For example, our newest current events in the Bib, AKA the bibliography, shows how exposing students to a political science class in community college helps create an informed electorate. Frank Fernandez recently published an article in educational research called, Turnout for What Do Colleges Prepare Informed Voters? Which uses the Community College Civic Outcomes Survey found at ICPSR. And now I have that song stuck in my head. I don't know if we're allowed to use that song uh, for, uh, for copyright reasons, but you know, you know I'm all singing it. Um, and if you are interested in digging into data related to extremism and social media, um, and that's what brought you here, we have a new study for you. This study is called The Role of Social Networks in the Evolution of Al-Qaeda-Inspired Violent Extremism in the United States. It's from 1990 to 2014. And the purpose of this research is to address the question, how do foreign terrorist organizations mobilize Americans to carry out attacks on their behalf? 
Um, there's very interesting data available there. So uh, we will link to that right now in the chat and also in the show notes. Thank you, Anna. And without further ado, we would like to introduce you to our guest for today, Libby Hempill. <laughs> Hi, thanks for the virtual claps. Those feel pretty awesome. <laughs> thanks for having me. So Libby directs the resource synergy, uh, sorry, this will be a blooper where I stop and say what I'm saying again <laughs> uh, in our normal workflow. Uh, so Libby directs the Resource Center for Minority Data at ICPSR and holds a joint appointment as an associate professor in the University of Michigan School of Information. She studies politicians, nonprofit organizations, and television fans to understand how people use social media to organize, discuss, and enact social change. She also develops automated mechanisms for moderating and classifying content in social media in order to reduce toxicity in online conversations. And just as a reminder, this is a live taping of this podcast. So our attendees who are here with us, you are welcome to type in questions at any time. There's a Q&A button down at the bottom of your window. Um, we will get to as many of those questions as we can. So Libby, first, congratulations on being a co-recipient of the University of Michigan School of Information Award for Outstanding Conduct in Instruction, Leadership, and Community-Engaged Research. Woohoo! Well-deserved. Thank you. So in the School of Information's news release about the award, you were praised for acquiring data sets and developing materials, tools, and research data about historically marginalized populations are appropriately accessible and reusable. So that'll be a great uh, lead in to the first question that we uh, usually ask our data brunch guests uh, in it's that we love to see the stories behind the data. So what makes your research a great story? Oh, wow. Well, I think there are a couple of different stories that we can tell from my research. The award from UMSI is actually, the way I read it is that it's an award for doing the work that I get to do at ICPSR, where it's sort of a, for everything we do at RCMD, which is the Resource Center for Minority Data, where We've had some big successes in the last couple of years on expanding our collections to include um, gender identity minorities uh, and sexual orientation minorities, and then to shore up other collections with uh, racial, ethnic, and religious minorities as well. Um, so that's sort of like my administrative role. In my research role, uh, the one that I think we're going to focus on today is that I study white supremacy online and ways that we can use human AI moderation techniques, where AI means artificial intelligence, which is a pretty broad term for anything computers can do to help out. That's how I'll use it today. Um, so how we can use human AI collaborations to try to address some of the problems of white supremacy online, especially uh, white supremacist speech specifically. Thank you. Mm -hmm. so, so can you talk about your research? into using machine learning technology to moderate hate speech and, and how that can help social media companies adapt to the spread of hate speech on their platforms. 
Sure. So part of what I do, so I consider myself a computational social scientist. So that means I'm a social scientist who uses computational methods. Uh, and in this case, when I'm studying uh, extremism online, and I'm going to say extremism and not hate speech, in part because I think that uh, hate speech is a sort of a triggering word for lots of different sides where um, it's contentious, uh, I think would be even a more accurate description that um, what counts as hateful uh, is not universal. Um, and then we end up, if we're talking about hate speech, we often end up in a fight about what counts rather than what can we do about it. Where when we use a moniker like extremism, um, that that sort of gets us into more behaviors than just speech and gets us away from some of these definitional distractions um, that get us to only look at uh, what is overtly hateful. So what do I do? So what I wanna try to understand is whether or not um, we can suggest ways that platforms could do a better job following and enforcing their own rules about extremism and hateful speech on their platforms. Uh, and in order for us to be able to, so I'm assuming that platforms have policies against hateful and extreme speech, which the mainstream platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Pinterest, they do. Um, so we're going to set aside, should they? So they do, they have them. How do we make sure that they are enforced and that those standards are upheld? One of the first things we have to be able to do is to identify the speech that's not allowed or the activity or behavior that's not allowed anyway. So we have a detection problem. And then we have a mitigation problem. So assuming that we can find it, we need to know what should we do. Uh, and I do research at each of those stages. So at the detection stage, how do we know what's problematic and at mitigation? So assuming that we can identify something that's problematic, what can we do about it? Um, and at the detection stage, I'm interested in ways that we can use the expertise of marginalized populations to identify problematic behaviors online. So traditionally, machine learning uses a crowd. Uh, and I'm using air quotes. The people who are watching can see me, but you can't hear my air quotes in the podcast. Um, a crowd is, I'm learning uh, through some experiments on Mechanical Turk, uh, a crowd is overwhelmingly white and male. And you will not be surprised to find that what white men think is hateful is not the same as what those more uh, sort of personally impacted by hateful speech find as hateful. So when we use that narrow uh, definition of what's bad to train computational models, we miss a lot of things that are really hurtful. Um, everything from microaggressions to overt misogyny or racism get missed if we only have one set of labelers. So in the detection, um, we work on both expanding the role of annotation, so human annotation in telling us what is problematic um, so that we have better data to feed into machine algorithms to teach them to recognize lots of different kinds of potentially problematic behaviors. But in order to um, sort of overcome what might be a, a greedy or overreactive or overly sensitive system, we bring the humans back in and we say, hey, the machines think this might be a problem. Can you take a look at the context and see if it is? Um, and some places, some examples of where context might matter, there's often language that groups use to talk within the group. 
Um, I'm a queer person. I say queer. I say queer to other queers. Um, that might be okay, but it's not okay for straight people to use potentially derogatory labels for queer people when they talk about me, even if it's okay for me to use them about myself. And so we can't look at just the speech. We have to be able to look at the context of the speech and the context is what humans are good at and the speech itself are what machines are good at. And so when they work together, we can do a better job of understanding is this particular exchange or behavior in keeping with the values of this place or is it not? Uh, and that that's what we can do for detection. Um, I feel like I'm rambling. So I'll, I'll pause there because I see there's been some chat that maybe I can check in on questions about, but I can also talk about the mitigation piece. Yeah, no, this is, uh, it's fascinating. And I, I want you to just keep rolling because it's all, <laughs> what I feel like is happening is I keep getting questions and then I get more questions. So one thing that you've kind of brought up for me is, you know, I, so all of this conversation you're talking about is happening on these social media platforms, which are private by nature. Mm -hmm. Do those social media platforms, do the private social media platforms have a responsibility to the public? Uh, yes, they do. So they're, they're private company, they're actually public companies that are privately owned. So there, and there are varying levels of private behavior that can occur on these platforms, but I have no problem saying that privately owned companies have public responsibilities and publicly owned companies have even more. Uh, and so some of those are about the sort of what do private businesses owe citizens under a system of capitalism, but some of them are also sort of ethical concerns about when you occupy a space like Facebook or Twitter does in the world of public discourse, what moral requirements do you have? And I think that they do have moral requirements to the public and that they haven't been keeping them. Thank you. Thank you so sure. much. I'm still wrapping my mind around what you said earlier when you said um, that what a white supremacist thinks is harmful is not necessarily what someone who's affected by their their work is is harmful. And that that mm -hmm. that I mean, mind blowing. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I'm going to be chewing on that all day. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think that this relates some to the, there's a question in the Q&A about extreme and whether or not there's a, mm -hmm. um, a shared definition of extreme. So there's a statistical definition of extreme. Mm -hmm. So we can use the statistical definition to tell us how far out of the norm is a particular behavior. And if it's really far out of the norm, then it's extreme. Um, so that's one way to do it. Whether that counts as quote political extreme or quote cultural or social extremism is different. but. Statistically, there is an extreme. Um, to Dory's question about the people who are doing harm to or speaking and doing harm and those who might experience it differently. Um, I think the, oh, I wanna look up what the name of the book is. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell a story in just a second about how I learned to pay attention to this. And it was in my own like personal anti-racism growth that I was like, oh, this is a thing that I did not recognize. Um, so let me look up what the name of the book is. But yeah, the idea that the people who are harmed, that you, you may not 
even so white supremacists often are not worried about whether or not they're hurting someone else's feelings but all of us are so deeply soaked in well all of us in the u.s are so deeply soaked in this white supremacist culture that we might be doing harm and not even notice so we may not recognize the sort of racist undertones or histories of common sayings or things that um, seem innocuous but are not really so i'll give two examples of anti-Semitism specifically, in part because I think like among uh, white supremacists care a lot about race, but they have racialized Jews and Muslims also that are not races necessarily, but they are sort of cultural and religious uh, monikers as well. And so from anti-Semitism, so um, when President Trump came to Michigan to speak at the Ford plant, um, I don't even remember how many years ago this was, but he referred to the workers at Ford as, or was he talking to, about the workers at Ford? In his remarks at Ford, he used the phrase good bloodlines to talk about Southeast Michigan and Ford workers, et cetera. And in, without any context, you're like, okay, bloodlines. Like he must mean we have like, we're good workers and always have been. In the context of Ford, where we sort of, if you're paying attention to anti-Semitism in the history in the US, you know that Henry Ford was a devout anti-Semitic speaker and writer. So you have this sort of Ford and his legacy of anti-Semitism. And then you have the essentialism of white supremacy that is about our genetic bloodlines and what they mean. And then you have a US president speaking in this sort of historically anti-Semitic place, saying this historically anti-Semitic phrase, and then being able to say, well, that's not what I meant. Um, but that's not what Jews heard. So, you know, the, the context of where the speech is occurring and who says it and what historical references are embedded in it matter. And you can't just show up at Henry Ford's place talking about good bloodlines and not expect somebody to push back and say, that's pretty anti-Semitic. Um, and so that's one of the examples of, you know, we say, well, but it was innocuous. Be like, on one level it might be, but also it brings with it a set of sort of hateful baggage that we have to acknowledge if we're trying to be inclusive and respectful. We have some questions rolling in. Uh, let's see, I'll take one from our participants. Uh, here's one that asks, are machines able to detect sarcasm and do your human crowds ever find that sarcasm can be offensive? So yes, machines can detect sarcasm, but not very well. Um, and do humans find them offensive? Absolutely. Uh, and so this is, question looks like it's, uh, uh, maybe I'm not supposed to say names out loud on the podcast, but from a participant, you know who I'm talking to because you're listening. But um, the, so yeah, machines are getting a little bit better at sarcasm, but this is actually one of the challenges for platforms is that in all of their terms of service, they carve out an exception for humor, satire, parody, et cetera. Um, and the people who, when people make mistakes about stuff that they posted, um, whether they knew it or not, they're often like, oh, I was just trying to be funny. Uh, and sometimes funny hurts anyway. And then we need to look at whether the benefit of the funny outweighs the pain of the hurt or the cost of the hurt. Um, and often the way that I would look at this is that sarcasm that punches up is probably fine. And sarcasm that punches down is just unnecessary. 
Uh, and if you're familiar with the punching up and punching down, it's about looking at who has power in a particular situation. And when you're criticizing somebody who is more powerful, uh, that is a sort of a, a speech act that I'm willing to protect, um, where someone who is in power punching down or hurting people who have less power is a speech act that while I'm, I recognize it as important under First Amendment law in the US, I, I don't find it as important to protect in other private spaces. So I don't want the government making a rule about that, but I'm totally fine with my immediate community saying we don't punch down here. I'm wondering, can we go back just a little bit? And this is me showing my own um, lack of knowledge. Can we talk a little bit about, so I know that social media data is kind of notoriously hard to crunch, hard to get access to. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what, like, what data are you actually looking at and how does that, can you just talk about the, the you know, sort of the data package itself that's not the right word but can you help me phrase this better sure we could talk a little bit about like what is in social media data and why is it hard to work with so um when i'm talking about social media data i'm, I'm thinking of the content that users have posted to social platforms where platforms are places that exist to host user-generated content um so i guess I, now that used to be a much narrower space. Now it's so big. It's everything from Facebook to Reddit to Parler to Substack. Um, but I'm focused on places like Facebook or Twitter where there are potential for following relationships and for commenting on each other's content relationships. Um, for a report that I did with the Anti-Defamation League Center on Technology and Society, I pulled all of the comments that have been posted to Stormfront, which is a the most successful white nationalist discussion board on the internet. Um, their term for themselves is white nationalist. I'm not assigning a term to them. Um, and then from Twitter users who in their bio or in their tweets themselves claim an affiliation with the quote alt-right uh, and then all of Reddit. So I used Reddit as sort of the internet baseline um, and then Twitter alt-righters as a sort of extreme in a public space. Uh, and then Stormfront as extreme in a niche space because Stormfront is public, um, but you know you and I are probably not gonna comment there. Just I'm assuming if you're yeah that you're probably not gonna comment there. Um, and so what that data looks like. So there are a couple of different ways to look at the data. So technically, if you're reading your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or your Reddit, the homepage or looking at the Stormfront forwards, you're looking at data. You're just looking at it in the presentation layer that they have, de have defined. Usually when I'm looking at data, um, it comes in uh, JSON, which is the JavaScript object no uh, notation, where it's a, a structured format um, that is represented in plain text, but has key value pairs that can be nested um, and I'm pulling them from the APIs that platforms provide where API is essentially the way that computers talk to each other. So there's a set of queries that I can make and I get a set of results back and those results are in JSON. Um, and then we put the JSON through some Python or R scripts to try to pull out what we're interested in. For me, it's usually the text and the date because I'm looking at language over time. I'm not particularly interested in individual users, but rather the overall language that gets used and over time. 
Um, and then we represented in a table, just like a survey, just totally different data, but same format. Does that help, Anna? Yeah, that does. And for anybody who's following along, is there a website you can shout out real quick that somebody might go to to see some of the stuff that you're talking about as they're listening? Um, maybe. Just to really throw you on the spot. <laughs> you mean to look at raw data or to look at? Maybe like a report or something like that. Um, maybe we often social media researchers don't often talk about their data in part because we might get in trouble. So I don't have one off the top of my head, but I'll get you one to put in your show notes. Okay, cool. That's perfect. And maybe this is a good spot to mention that, uh, you know, going to someplace like, um, you know, ICPSR to get the raw data, obviously you all who are here know about that. Um, but something like the resource center for minority data which is part of ICPSR is a really valuable place to be able to find data that would be um, useful here. And then hopefully uh, for other folks like me who are not as good at the raw data, but could definitely use some of that, um, that data that has been uh, packaged and reported out, we'll get that to you in the show notes. Okay. I did put one example of a study at ICPSR, um, the Me Too data set from some researchers at Northeastern University, they were studying uh, me to the hashtag on Twitter for about a week in 2017. Um, but if you use that data, you'll see a bunch of the challenges that we have in archiving and sharing social media data that uh, Twitter's terms of service, which are the rules that Twitter sets for using its platform, prohibit us from sharing tweets with one another. Um, and so what the team at Northeastern did was share the tweet IDs. So you can look up each individual tweet um, at Twitter or through the Twitter API, but we're not actually allowed under Twitter's rules to share the data. Um, so we can share metadata, but not data itself. Uh, let's see if you answered this question uh, with, with what you just said about Twitter. Has okay. the change has the change in Twitter policy on research data that kind mm -hmm. of snuck in mid 2020? Has it, uh, <laughs> you know? Is it now possible to do more with archiving Twitter data in research sets? Has so, it given more access? I love that you think it snuck in among academics who study Twitter. It was like, oh my God, now we have access. But it didn't actually change the rules. So the only thing that changed is that we can get more data than we used to be able to while still following Twitter's rules. The prohibition on sh sharing still exists. Um, but I mean, you can listen to other talks that I've given about this to get a sense of how I feel about terms of service um, and whether or not I have any moral or legal requirement to follow them. Um, so there's a little, just Google that. The answer is shorter than you think. We'll, we will link those too. We'll try to get all, all this good stuff in the show notes. Yeah. There are things I probably shouldn't say in the ICPSR podcast, but I've been public about it somewhere else. All right, let Scott know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. Let's take another one from our participants. I'm trying to see. Why is it so impossible for people to apologize for the harm, even if it came unintentionally or out of ignorance? I love this question. Um, in part because we, so we, I mentioned I would talk about mitigation. So I'm going to tell a long story about a mitigation study to answer your question about apologies uh, and harm. 
So we did an experiment on Reddit where we used a human AI combination uh, such that every time somebody personally insulted someone else on Reddit, so a very narrow subset of unacceptable behaviors, um, where when somebody personally insulted somebody on Reddit, either a human or a bot would respond uh, with one of, I think we have six different strategies for de-escalating that conversation, um, where we use things like a humorous meme or a confronting, hey man, that's not how we act here. Um, or we say, oh, I'm sorry, this looks like there's some confusion. Of all of the things that we tried, only apologizing mattered. All of the other ways that we tried to de-escalate, uh, they didn't make anything worse, but they didn't make anything better, except for apologies. And so an apology, in order to be effective, doesn't even have to come from the person who did the harm. That it can be effective at reducing the rate of personal insults even if a third party says, hey, I'm sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry that this occurred in our space. Um, and so apologies are really useful because they do acknowledge that someone hurt. And it doesn't actually matter whether we meant to hurt someone um, or if we didn't, that they still feel hurt. And so it's important for us to apologize. The question that was asked is why is that so hard? Well, in order to acknowledge that someone else is hurt, um, almost always, like if somebody stubs their toe, this isn't true, but usually it means that someone else messed up. And it's hard to say, I messed up or my friend messed up. Um, I'm also a parent of a young child. And a lot of what I study in moderation and content moderation is just like parenting, that you have to be able to say, I messed up and to acknowledge that everybody's working on something and everybody messes up sometimes and that it still matters that we say, I'm sorry that I hurt you. I will try not to do that again in the future. And that there are actually these two parts to apologies. So the recognizing that harm occurred and taking ownership of that harm, but then also an effort to repair. And this comes from sort of uh, restorative justice framework is like the legal framework around it. But I think it's also, just from like toddler training, that apologies require repair, not just acknowledgement. And it both of those things are really hard to do because they threaten our social standing to say, I messed up. Um, and I think that we put a lot of pressure on each other that raises the stakes of an apology. And that if we just get a little bit gentler to each other and acknowledge that everybody messes up sometimes, which is also hard to say, um, but there's even some research about how we are all the trolls on the internet. Like if you catch us in a bad mood on the right topic, we will all be jerks. Uh, and so we have to acknowledge that sometimes people are jerks on purpose more often, um, but everybody messes up and that, that we socially have to be willing to both accept um, and enact apologies for that to get easier. But to recognize that it's hard to say I screwed up is an important first step. I want to say, like, I am here for the podcast on Libby's life advice. I would also, <laughs> I would also go to that. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, one, we did get a question from someone about the media bias chart that comes from um, Adfontes Media. Um, mm -hmm. I want to just give a quick shout out to that because we actually had our last podcast episode was with the creator of Adfontes Media, and we got to talk oh, about right the. Oh, it was so, it was fascinating. I wish you could have been there for the whole conversation. Um, it was, 
wild and so um just knowledge bombs drop in so good um <laughs> but there it's an interesting um connection to the conversation that we're having right now about how you're saying you know helping you can do so much by even saying the apology even if you didn't do the thing and mm -hmm. um Vanessa Otero was talking a lot about how if you um the way that we move people from, you know, uh, non-evidence-based media towards evidence-based media and how that happens over time. And I wish we could do kind of a, you know, a mashup of these two episodes because there's so much, there are so many good nuggets here between those two um, for how we could kind of move the needle on, on making that better for, for our world, talking about how, you know, data doing good. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, next question that's coming up, and I'm, I'm realizing that we're getting short on time. Um, I wish this was a four-hour podcast, but sadly it is not. Um, so a question that we have is, do you feel like your work relies too much on the assumption of good faith from social media companies? And I will address that that, that was a larger question that I have combined um, into a smaller question. Um, but again, do you feel like your work relies too much on the assumption of good faith from social media companies? Uh, I have not experienced good faith from social media companies and I still get work done. So I, I don't think I'm relying on their good faith. In fact, I'm assuming that they will not act in what are the best interests of society. Um, and instead what we need to do, so when you look at how do I, how do I try to have public impact in the work that I'm doing? I do engage platforms. I'm happy to talk to them if they're willing to meet. Um, but I talk to the press. I do podcasts like this. I work with advocacy organizations like the Center for Technology and Society because I don't trust platforms to do good things with the research that we do or that they do. As Dory mentioned earlier this week, we saw Facebook knows a lot about what it what its impacts are and it doesn't act in society's best interest for them or even perhaps in the individual interest. So a lot of my time is spent getting around what platforms want and what platforms want to be able to do. Um, and I think I don't expect them to behave well in part because they're profit-driven companies. Like we've told them that profit and growth matter. So they're going to optimize for profit and growth. Uh, and until we change the stakes, like why would they change their behaviors? Um, and so part of what we can do to change the stakes, if those are the levers I have to pull, the like the profit levers, um, then we can do things like educate the public to be less extractable on their platforms, um, or we can raise a stink in the press. Like these are things that still work. Like if you want change in the world, you need to bring hearts and minds and the media. Uh, and so that's what you got to do. And then platforms will come along when they have no other choice, just like any other company that they'll come along when they don't have another choice. A lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm looking to see if any other questions come in through the Q&A. Um, but I'll ask you uh, while we're waiting, can you talk about one of the biggest challenges that you faced in your work? Getting data in the first place is definitely the biggest challenge. So some of it is because there are technical limitations. Um, like one of our questions was about the change in the academic researcher API that Twitter made last year. 
there didn't used to be a separate way for academics to get data from Twitter. We were bound by the same rules as individuals and companies. Um, I mean, many of the ORs who are watching today are parts of uh, academic organizations. And you know that we don't have millions of dollars around to just buy up some data for one study. Um, so to put us in the same pot as like a brand, like, I don't know, Audi USA, they have a lot more money to spend on figuring out what social media has to say about them than an anti-racism researcher has to study anti-blackness online. Like the, just, it wouldn't make sense to put us in the same pot. Of course, we weren't gonna have data. So some of them are like the, the rules, policy limitations, some are technical, um, that the amount of data that we're talking about, um, oh, I just pulled up, I have 95 gigs, gigabytes of data that are compressed, that are the tweets from US and Indian politicians over the last three years, maybe. So super compressed data, 95 gigabytes, that's more than ICPSR's whole collection used to be. So thinking about how much data that is and how you move it around, and that's just one project. Like I had a conversation with a potential depositor a couple of weeks ago who had 20 petabytes of data. Like the physical storage requirements for 20 petabytes is more than our server room. Like the, you just, you can't hold this much data. Uh, and the cheapest, I'm pulling up a chart in my notes because I just had this conversation. Um, so letting a, moving a petabyte of data from place to place in the cloud, the cheapest one I can find. Does anybody whose audio is on want to guess how much it costs to move a petabyte from place to place? So like if I wanted to move a petabyte from ICPSR to a user, what that might cost? $600. Anybody else? Someone says 10K in the chat. Somebody says 10K, somebody says 600 bucks. The cheapest I can find is $52,500. OMG. <laughs> <laughs> so a petabyte, and this is going from Amazon Web Services Glacier Archive, which is like a petabyte object. Moving it from place to place, Amazon will charge you $52,000 to do that, which is yeah, right? It's a lot of money. There's, it's a lot yeah. of money. For anybody who's listening, um, you are hearing the speechlessness and you're not getting to see the the wide <laughs> open gaping mouth visuals that are just, it's wild to us and we work with data. So this, yeah. is, a, this is an incredible amount of money that we're talking about for, you know, just for the ability to get access to the, you know, to one, you know, kind of one piece of the puzzle. Yep. And so if you're wondering, ORs, where is the social media archive or SOMAR? Uh, there it is. We're still, <laughs> we're still trying. But even, and the storage for a, a terabyte a month is about a dollar. So I'm paying $95 a month of my own money to pay to store some data before we deposit. But when you're thinking about, you know, we need to have two or three copies of data, you're up to three bucks per terabyte. Um, the this scale is just outrageous, and it is a it requires a completely different funding and storage and infrastructure than the data that we as social scientists are used to, and that ICPSR is really good at. And we're learning how to do that. Um, and I'm impressed with our how much we've learned as an organization um, and what we're able to change. But yeah, massive scale data is coming for social science, and we are 
it's going to be expensive. So for everybody listening, um, ICPSR is is working on this. We are working on, um, you heard the reference to SOMAR. Um, this is going to be our social media archive. Um, it's coming, but it's tough. So we're working on it. Um, and hopefully by the time, uh, you know, posterity listens to this, um, there will be an answer to that question. Um, thinking about time, um, I do have one last question that I wanted to ask. Um, and really this is, you know, what is it that you wish people would ask you? Um, oh, I, I get this every time somebody does a live interview with me and I feel like I always fumble it. Uh, what do I wish that people would ask? Um, I mean, I think I would ask what, like, can individuals ever do anything or are these problems too big? And I think the answer is that there is no problem that is too big for us to solve together. And that like we talked about apologies earlier, that that's something that we can do. We can say, I'm sorry, someone else hurt you. We can say, I'm sorry, this space isn't what you needed to be yet. Um, we can be more thoughtful in the way that we engage. But even those individual behaviors, if they're still just from individual to individual, aren't going to matter. We're going to have to do things together. We're going to have to put pressure on platforms together. We're going to have to put pressure on bad actors together. We're going to have to hold each other accountable, even when we're in bad moods. And even when somebody says something that sets us off. Um, and that when we're able to do that, whether online or off, then social media will have the chance to be the inclusive and representative and important place for social connection that I still believe it can be. Yes, Libby, shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> there was also, there was a question about um, if there's any data as part of a future of congressional efforts. So I put a link to the uh, legislation currently sitting at the US Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation. That's where you can find out uh, what is Congress doing about this? There's a sister committee in the house that has a lot less legislation, but is holding similar hearings. So if you wanna know what is Congress gonna do um, about data and social media companies, um, those are the committees to watch. All right, so I think we might be down to our last two questions. I'll take one of them. This is okay. uh, this is a question that everyone can answer, but, but first uh, you Libby is, what is your favorite brunch? My my favorite brunch? <laughs> yeah. Like the event or the food the, or the, the food. The food. You heard you me say I have a small child, right? I haven't uh, had brunch in 10 years. Um I don't you know, I like a well, what would be appropriate for me to answer? Um it's been so long since I had, I'm a, I, the essential tension in brunch is sweet or savory. And I'm having that problem right now. I'm going to go savory. I'm going to go chicken and waffles with gravy because it's morning. I was just thinking chicken and waffles because you, you're <laughs> right. You get, you get sweet and savory at the same time. And dessert you do. And breakfast. Yep. <laughs> yep without having to eat sausage like I just I'm not that into sausage but I'll take a chicken and waffle for sure and but it has to have gravy because gravy is like a food group 
someone says, is there an inappropriate brunch? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that Uh, there is. That's one of the great things about brunch, right? It's like, just feed your body when it's ready to be fed. Yeah. I'm hearing hash browns and hot sauce. Depends on how many mimosas are involved. Scrapple. Now, okay, I'm going to need to know. What what, is scrapple? A Monte Cristo. (laughs) Oh, Monte Cristo. There's actually a restaurant in Ann Arbor that has a really legit Monte Cristo. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, I want to tell me about Scrapple, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's silly food. I like it. What is like a, a day-old cheesesteak? <laughs> <laughs> I like us guessing what Scrapple Uh-oh. is. Someone... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so narrating for the folks who are listening, Scrapple <laughs> is also known by the Pennsylvania Dutch name Panhas. Um, it is pork scraps and trimmings combined with cornmeal and wheat flour, um, buckwheat flour and spices. Um, <laughs> is it like a hash then or is it like a patty? This person says it's weird ground mystery meat fried, which sounds amazing. Right, doesn't it? <laughs> And for, uh, for everybody who's listening, um, a big part of this is, so when we create a data brunch, of, like part of why we do this is because there are so many incredible people doing incredible things with data. Um, and we just wish that we had time to like sit down with you on Sunday morning and have a mimosa. I don't know if that's allowed to say, but that's what we were saying. Like, how do we have these conversations where it's just a, you know, a conversation between folks talking about things, you know, things that we care about and things that are important. So, um, so thank you for joining Data Brunch. Thank you for being part of this and for sharing your expertise. Um, if people were interested in learning more about your work or contacting you, um, where would it be a good place for them to go to find out more? Sure. So uh, Libby H, L-I-B-B-Y-H on Twitter and.com and at UMish. Thank you, Libby. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And thanks everybody for coming to the biennial meeting. You're the highlight of our year. That's right. Thanks everybody. Thank you for the awesome questions. This was a multi-sensory experience, I have to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, that is the end of our episode. Thank you so much to everyone for being with us live and also for everybody uh, who is listening to us. Oh. And if you- oh, sorry, Anna, this is one of those things where, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. This is a live moment in a live episode. Um, So if you aren't already, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts um, and tell us what you'd like to hear. We love to hear from you. We have a feedback form on our website. Um, Anyone who's live, message us in now Um, and do share your thoughts on social media using hashtag data brunch. We love to get to see stuff pop up there. Um, And as always, thank you to the over 700 members of ICPSR. This podcast and the biennial meeting would not be possible without our ICPSR members. Um, A shout out to some of the representatives who are here live. Um, ICPSR representatives make the world go round and we appreciate you so much. Um, And and you can get in touch with us by visiting our website, which is icpsr.umich.edu. You can email us at icpsr-podcast 
um, at umich.edu. And I want to give a special thank you to Scott, our producer, who makes us um, sound less uh, bloopery than we really are in real life. Thank you so much, Scott. For everyone here live and for those listening at home or in your car or however you podcast, we'll be giving away some ICPSR swag to someone out there. Take a picture and tag us on social media using hashtag databrunch or send us an email at icpsr-podcast at umich.edu. And we can't wait to see it. I'm Anna. And I'm Dory. And thanks for joining us at ICPSR's Data Brunch. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs>